Well, welcome to our second week of Learn to Read the Bible Effectively. Um, glad you could uh, could join us once again. And uh, I will remind you that uh, notes from this class, uh, some homework if you're interested, and these slides will also be available. Uh, so however it is you're watching this, hopefully you can uh, follow the, the, the notes um, and, and get a copy of those as well in, in the link somewhere to a Google Drive. Uh, so week two. Uh, of our learn to read the Bible effectively. And we'll remind you that our goal in these in these sessions is to help you to be able to read the Bible for yourself. That's our goal. Uh, we will cover things that are maybe considered um, you know doctrinal, but that's not our intention. Our intention is to look uh, at the Bible and find ways to read it effectively. So one of the things you might notice, uh, and you again should maybe have a Bible with you. I'm just getting mine out here. Uh, whether you have that um, virtually or whether you have that uh, as uh, uh, hard copy, um, let's get let's get started. So the first thing you might notice that if you you turn to uh, your table of contents on your Bible, uh, you'll see that uh, it's broken into to two parts. It's uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I'm just finding my table of contents here. Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, all the way through to Malachi. Um, and then New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, all the way to Revelation. So our, our Bible seems to be divided into these two parts. So the first question then really is, um, what is a testament? Well, a testament uh, has many meanings, but but in essence, it's really just a covenant, an agreement, a promise, a pledge between two parties. You know, my last will and testament is is my commitment, my promise of of how to divide um, my my estate if I should pass away. So it really is a promise or a covenant, and, and it's this word covenant that we're going to pick up with mostly. Um, or promise, as we will see. Um, so really what we have then is uh, that that God's word is based on, uh, the Bible is based on covenants of promise that God made with faithful men in times past. And, and so this word, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament that naturally divides, obviously, historically around uh, the time of Christ you know, our dating system, B.C. and A.D., uh, revolves around the figure of the Lord Jesus Christ. So really, our Bible is divided into those two parts as well for much the same reason. Um, and as we've said, if you look in your contents page of your Bible, you'll see that it's it's divided that way. So why does it pivot then? Why is there an Old Testament? And, and in what sense are, uh, is this promise or covenant new when Jesus came? Well, we have this passage here on the screen, Romans 15, verses 8 to 9. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ came to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And so these promises is what we're picking up on here. This, this word promises or covenant or testament that God made in the Old Testament before Christ. And he came to confirm those things. Or, or this passage here in 2 Peter um, chapter 1, verse 4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And, and so they're really, this isn't trivial, this isn't just sort of a side issue. These are uh, essential 
Bible teachings. These it, it revolves around these promises that God made, and we're going to look at them a little later on um, in this section right here. So why old and new? What's what's the point? Well, we have this passage here, Hebrews 9, verse 15. The Lord Jesus Christ is described as the mediator of the new covenant or new testament uh, in Hebrews 9, verse 15. So he he mediated this, this new covenant. In, which, in what sense is it new? Well, it's totally based on the old, and he just came to fulfill them. And so really then, the, the events surrounding uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is a natural way to divide up our Bible. Now, we believe the entire scripture from cover to cover is is uh, is God's word as we saw last week it's God breathed all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable all scripture from Genesis to Revelation um so it's 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 a natural way to break it up really for our convenience so that we can say well these books are before Christ we'll call that the old testament these books are after Christ we'll call that the new testament but we're going to see that they're totally based the new promises the new covenant is based on those promises made in the old testament um so it's man-made in the sense that well just like the chapters and the verses and, and everything are just so that we can say quickly you know turn to to john chapter 10 verse whatever we can find it quickly in our bible um there was a book scroll called john or a scroll called isaiah the isaiah scroll has been found in the dead sea scrolls you can see it um, they didn't have chapters and verses. It was just one big long scroll. They had other ways of marking breaks. So we've added those things in, just like we have for the first 39 books and the last 27. Um, but we do believe the entire Bible is inspired by God. When when Paul said to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. When, when Paul wrote those words, the scriptures he would have been thinking of would have been what we now call the Old Testament. It was the Hebrew Bible. I think we mentioned last week that, you know, the Old Testament is primarily written in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic. The New Testament uh, is in Greek. So there's there's all these natural divisions, the, the, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the language being used, and so on. But the entire Bible is God's revelation. And, and we know that to be important because Jesus himself uh, taught from what we now call the Old Testament. For them, it would have been their scriptures, the, the Hebrew, the Hebrew works, the, the Hebrew books. So uh, this in Luke 24, verse 27 here, Jesus is teaching disciples about himself. They don't know it's him, um, but he's he's going to instruct them about himself. This is after his resurrection. He says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, the gospel accounts wouldn't have been written. Paul wasn't even a convert yet. So all the scriptures were the Old Testament. And he was able to teach them about himself, that Messiah was supposed to die, to suffer and be resurrected. And eventually at the end, they go, oh, wow. And they recognize that it's actually Jesus speaking to them. And we mentioned a little bit about this, the promises to Abraham. If you did the homework from week one, if you didn't, that's okay too. But basically, the gospel message, what we call the gospel, was preached to Abraham. Here, Galatians 3, verse 8. This was our key verse in the homework section from week one. All scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. That comes right out of Genesis 12. That in Abraham, all the nations would be blessed, Jew and Gentile. 
And, and so this is the, the essence of the gospel message. It's there in the Old Testament. Of course, we have the covenant of promise, uh, you know, the, the, um, the Ten Commandments. These things are all part of the Old Testament scriptures of which the New Testament is based. So there's three main promises or covenants, and we're going to quickly go through them here in this section um, just to, to sow some seeds and lay some groundwork. Remember, our purpose here is to help you to read the Bible yourself, learning to read the Bible effectively. And there is no way you can come to um, the scriptures and only have the New Testament. So right back here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, this is God speaking to the serpent who had deceived Eve. I will put enmity between you, the serpent and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He, the woman's seed, will bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. And so you have this figure here, like we have in the graphic, where in this struggle, in this battle, um, the man crushes the serpent's head, a deadly blow, but in the process, um, gets his heel bruised or, or uh, some damage inflicted to it, um, perhaps from a bite, but it's not um, fatal. So really, this is the promise of a savior from sin. So the, the serpent becomes representative of sin. Uh, and Jesus came, the, 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 the woman's seed. Uh, this is the promise of a savior, the woman's seed, who we now know to be Jesus, crushed sin in himself uh, by never giving into it. He was perfect in his obedience. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And so he crushed the head of the serpent in a symbolic way in himself. Now, this one's interesting. Before we get to Abraham, Abraham, if you did the worksheet, the homework, um, then you've gone through a lot of these promises to Abraham. But just turn to the very first book of, of the New Testament. You know, there are some Bibles that only have a New Testament, and we would say, you know, that's that's not enough. That's not appropriate. Maybe just introduce someone. It's okay. But have a look. If you only had the book, you know, maybe some Psalms and Proverbs, and then it started in Matthew chapter 1, the very first verse you read would really confuse you. So imagine not having the Old Testament at all, Genesis to Malachi, maybe some Proverbs and Psalms, and you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, you open up your Bible, and you read the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. Oh, great, I'm going to learn about Jesus. That's that's the gospel message. The son of David, the son of Abraham, and you'd be like, well, who's David and who's Abraham? And why do we care that Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat Jacob and all these, these lists of names? Well, it's rooting Jesus himself in this family tree of promises and covenants that have been made. And so um, in Genesis chapter 13, now it's in Genesis 12 and 13 and 14 and 17, there's there's many that this, this promise is, is uh, emphasized uh, to Abraham time and again. But we'll just pick this one here, Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to Abram, Abram, his name is Abraham at this point. He wasn't changed to Abraham yet. After Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are. And he was in the land of what we now call Israel, uh, in the mountains um, just above, uh, in, in the in the hill country of, of Judea um, now. Look where you are, north, south, east, and west. All the land which you see I will give to you and to your seed forever. And so we can see from this, and we'll we'll prove it in a moment, that the, 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 he's promised many descendants, but there's one special one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and, and this land that he could see was given to him and to his seed, Jesus, forever. So that hasn't occurred. Abraham didn't ever uh, inherit any of the land. It, when, his, when Sarah died, he had to buy a piece of land to, to bury her. It says he didn't even get uh, you know, anything that even put his foot on, it says in, in Acts chapter 7. So these haven't yet been fulfilled, and that's part of this process and why it's so important to see this going from uh, Genesis all the way through into the New Testament. Um, David, remember what Matthew 1 verse 1 said? He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. Well, David was promised a seed, and this is a key word, effective Bible reading. You know, pick up on this word seed. Now, if you have a modern translation, it might say offspring. That's good because offspring can also be plural or singular. If your translation says descendants, that's problematic because descendants plural and descendants singular are different. And we're going to see that both Abraham and David were promised many, many descendants, but also one special one. And so we pick up on that. You can see our highlighting. The other key word is here forever and before you. So this, this house that's going to be built, a temple, a kingdom, um, this was all promised to, to David in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16. So he's promised a king, a singular son who would sit on his throne, and a kingdom that lasts forever. Now, David reigned for 40 years, his son Solomon reigned for 40 years, and then everything, even this temple that Solomon built was destroyed, they had to build a new one later. Um, so it didn't last forever. One generation, really, was all that lasted. But there's description here of, of a promised seed and this is a promise God made, and we know God keeps his promises. So all these are fulfilled in Christ. So um, we now come to the New Testament, and, and look what the angel tells Mary in Luke chapter 1. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. We maybe should have highlighted this word son, uh, like the seed. So he's speaking to Mary. This promise was to Mary. So Jesus was the seed of the woman. There was no man involved. Jesus uh, was formed in Mary's womb without the intervention of a man. It was he was formed by the the Holy Spirit. Um, when when Mary herself questions, this, "How can this be? I'm I'm not married. I don't I haven't known a man." He says, "You know, the power of the highest will overshadow you, and that thing that is conceived in your womb uh, will be called the Son of God." So definitely the seed of a woman. His name will be Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Highest, the Son of God. But also, he's going to be given the throne of his father, David. Right? Matthew 1, verse 1, the son of David. Genesis, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel 7, the, the promise of a king. He will reign over the house of Jacob. Well, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This is the These are the patriarchs. These are the promises were made to Abraham and then to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob forever. Of his kingdom, there'll be no end. And in Galatians 3, we read verse 8 previously, then we've come to verse 16, and, and the Bible interpretation is clear. And this is, you know, we've, we've really been emphasizing, hopefully in these, this series, that uh, the Bible interprets itself. So what did it mean in Genesis chapter 13, I will give this, uh, this land to your seed? What did it mean? Was it just the, the, the future descendants, you know, the, anyone that had DNA of Abraham in their, in their veins would inherit this land? Well, it did mean that, but in particular, it meant a singular seed. So let's just read it. Genesis 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He didn't say to seeds, plural, because the word seed 
can be plural or singular. So it's being emphasized here. It's not seeds plural as of many, but of one to your seed singular, who is Christ. And later on in Galatians chapter three, we find out that through baptism, we become heirs of those same promises because we become part of Jesus's family. And so it's just, it's like a promise or a will or a testament. God promised things to Abraham, Abraham's descendants. All of them were primarily this one Jesus. And so we can become connected it, connected to it and heirs according to the promise by being associated with Jesus through baptism and belief and, and faith as well. So why two testaments? It's the, the new testament, the new covenant that has been ratified in Jesus based on those old promises that were made in the Old Testament. And so it's a natural division in our Bible. It's a natural division historically, four thousands of years of history before Jesus. We've had 2,000 years since Jesus. We expect him to come back any time to make up that 6,000-year plan, like the six days of creation, and then the time of rest, when the kingdom will come, that millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's a natural division, and it's helpful, but don't lose sight of the fact that we need them both. And the Old Testament helps us to understand what we read in the New Testament. Now, an example of that further would be prophecy. And so this second section of uh, week two is on the role of prophecy. Now, before we get to kind of what you might think of normally about prophecy, and that is sort of foretelling the future, um, the word prophecy, the idea of prophecy can also just be forth telling, speaking forth God's words. And it may not relate to the future. It could relate to the here and now. Um, and so in 1 Corinthians 14, this idea of prophecy as exhortation involved, comfort, edification, building up, strengthening others, uh, conviction, conversion, instruction. Uh, there's all kinds of ways in which we can speak forth God's word. And this is a form of prophecy, although not in the sense of the English word. When we think of the English word, we think more of, of foretelling, predicting the future. And prophecy is uh, then uh, is is uh, it warns man regarding his his failure and need for repentance and salvation, and that there's things coming in the future uh, which which um, God has predicted. Classic example would be Noah. There's a flood coming. Noah build an ark and save your house. And so he believed the word of God, the prophecy, and um, therefore he uh, built a house and uh, built the ark and saved his house. Now, we just note here that we don't look at prophecy for, you know, satisfying our idle curiosity about future events. It, events. It's not about, oh, look at me, I can predict what's going to happen next year. And it's not, it's not that. It's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. Um, the purpose of prophecy is to give um, assistance, as we've said here, to believers, that we can trust God's word. Uh, that's the challenge that God puts out in his word. You know, who else can predict the future other than me, says God? Uh, so trust me and believe my word, because if what I've said has come to pass already, you can know the future is is certain. Um, and, and therefore, we change our life based on, on that confidence we have in God's word. Now, we're going to look at, at one example here from Daniel chapter 2. But before we get there, just, just flip over to uh, Revelation chapter 13. Um, you know, a lot of people think, okay, I want to understand the book of Revelation. It's it's uh, it's about Latter-day events. It's about, you know, what's going on now. Uh, teach me about the book of Revelation, uh, which would be fine, um, except that you can't understand Revelation unless you have a good understanding of everything that leads up to it. You know, you can't, you don't 
pick up a book and start reading at the back normally, unless you want a bunch of spoiler alerts and then maybe you're just done with it. No, this is we, we need everything that goes through here. So you might come to Revelation 13 and we'll just read the first two verses. I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his, ten, his uh, horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were the feet of a bear, and his mouth was the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And you think, wow, what, what is going on here? And we could, you know, spend hours debating, oh, what's a beast mean? Or what are horns? Or what, why heads? And, and why leopards and bears and, and lions? Well, we'll come back to that because we don't need to guess. When we let in scripture, when we let allow scripture to interpret itself, it's very clear what it's being spoken of here. So uh, you can open your Bible to Daniel chapter two, if you like, or you can follow along here on the screen. Basically, uh, Daniel is a Hebrew. He's in he's in he's in captivity in Babylon. The Babylonians came down and crushed the uh, the the uh, kingdom that was in Judah at the time. Took everyone, uh, most of them, captive to Babylon. And uh, the king's name was Nebuchadnezzar, the perhaps most famous Babylonian king. And he had an incredible dream that just just astounded him, and he wanted to know what it meant. And he asked all his wise men, and they were like. Well, tell us the dream and we'll tell you interpretation. He's like, no, 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 I'm not going to play that game. You tell me what I dreamed and then I'll know for sure that your interpretation is true. And they're like, we can't do that. So he was going to kill them all. And uh, one of the sort of wise men in training was this young Hebrew man, Daniel. And he's called in, says, look, I'll, I'll tell the king his dream because interpretations belong to God. And so he recounts the dream, says, you saw this great image. Okay. It was uh, it was awesome, and and you were startled by it. Its head was gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze or brass. Its legs were of iron, and then the feet were part of iron and part of clay. And then what's on the next slide? But um, a, a stone comes along. It strikes the image on its feet and destroys the image and grinds it all to powder. Now, kind of like the parable of the sower that we did last week, where remember, you know, you just have to keep reading a few more verses, and Jesus interpreted the parable of the, the sower, and that gives kind of a, a way that we can then interpret par uh, parables that Jesus gives. So too, this prophecy, I would suggest Daniel 2 is so uh, foundational and so important that if you get your head around this and get a solid foundation in Daniel 2, we'll see it unlocks future prophecies that otherwise might be a little bit more difficult. So, so Daniel, just a few verses later, says, You, O king, are the head of gold. This, this, this image is representing the kingdom of, of man, and you're the first great king. You're the king of Babylon. So the top is Babylon. After you, there's going to be another throne, another kingdom. He says, You might not like to hear that, Nebuchadnezzar. You might think your kingdom is going to last forever, but it doesn't work that way. Not in man's kingdom. There's always a new kid on the block, a new power. And that's the Medes and the Persians. After them, there's going to be another third kingdom of brass, a fourth kingdom like iron. And then after that, the feet are iron and clay mixed because they're not going to be strong. They're not going to have um, the kind of power that you have, O king. It's going to be broken up amongst many people, partly strong and partly broken. So notice we got a lot of things here. We've got a top heavy idol. It's got a uh, our image. It's got a, a weak foundation. This represents the kingdom of, of, of man. Um, and the dream goes on. He says, you saw a stone was cut in the mountains without hands. And it smashed the image like we have in this graphic here. And uh, just demolished it. It became like, like chaff and it was all blown away. 
And then the stone which came be, grew to become a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And, and he basically says, that's the kingdom of God. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, was told about God's kingdom on earth. Uh, God's kingdom will replace man's kingdom. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. It's not going to be destroyed. There's not going to be succession plans for God. It's going to stand forever. There's our word forever. It ties exactly in to the promises God made to Abraham. That was land. To David, a king and a kingdom. And ultimately, that same seed was the Lord Jesus Christ promised in Genesis chapter 3, the Savior. So he deals with sin when he came the first time. He'll deal with the, the, the whole kingdom uh, when he comes, when he returns. Now, this prophecy in Daniel is given about 500, 600 B.C., and it is so accurate in its prediction that many critics of the Bible say there's no way it was, could have been written in 500, 600 B.C. It must have been written more like 300 A.D., and someone who actually knew the succession of empires in that part of the world then made up this story. And no, this is this has been proven by archaeology, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and so on, that this Daniel lived in the time of Babylon, and that he had this vision, that he uh, the king had the vision, and that Daniel interpreted it. And this predicted world events for empires in that part of the world. And, and so let's go. Basically, Daniel 2 reveals world history. So the head of gold is Babylon. You can see where Babylon existed. And this is going to be our focus. You know, there's not a whole lot of Bible prophecy about the wide, wide world, the Incas or North America, or China. It doesn't, Australia doesn't deal with what's going on in those parts of the world. It focuses pretty much on Israel and nations that, you know, conquered Israel or, or were kind to Israel, whatever. That's kind of the focus. Following on, remember it said there'll be a second kingdom inferior to you, a breast of, uh, um, the breast and arms of silver. Uh, this is the Medo-Persian. Interesting. It's a combined um, empire. It's the Medes and the Persians. The Medes came up first, but the Persians were stronger. And so there's two arms to this uh, chest and arms, two different um, parts of this, of this empire. And you can see it's actually bigger um, than Babylon geographically, but it's inferior in that uh, there, you, you can't rule it the way Nebuchadnezzar did. Like Nebuchadnezzar just said it and happened. His word was, was solid. We see in the Medes and Persians, the king was bound by his own word. He couldn't just change on a whim. If he signed it into law, the laws of the Medes and Persians didn't change. So there's an inferiority in terms of the kind of rulership or leader. Well, then we have the belly and thighs of brass, the midsection here. Um, and that's Greek. That's the Greek empire came next after the, the Medes and the Persians. And we've even heard of the brazen-coated Greeks. Alexander the Great came out of, um, uh, out of the West here and uh, just came across this uh, and, and took over everything, the brazen-coated Greeks. Um, and then the legs of iron were, were Rome. Rome came next. It's interesting, there's two legs of iron, and eventually the Roman Empire split into two, east and west. And um, so that's significant. All these little details are so significant. This is an incredible prediction of, of world events given in the time of Daniel, 600 B.C., and then what we see in that part of the world today is this fractured, broken up kind of empire. It's not like the Roman Empire. It's not like the Greek Empire, the Medes and the Persians or the Babylonian. It's partly strong and partly broken. Oh, there's still something Roman about it. If the legs of iron are the Roman Empire, the, the iron's still there. Um, but it, it's broken up. It's now got clay. 
It's got perhaps human humanism in it. Wh- whatever we might see, you know, the from 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 Nebuchadnezzar as the head absolute dictator, all the way down to now, um, you know, even the Roman Empire was starting to fracture uh, because of some of the influence of of ideas and and that the form of rulership was less um, dictatorial, and so we see that. Uh, and certainly the modern Europe today has partly strong and partly broken. And what we see then is that it's at this time that Jesus returns. Um, and we don't know when that's going to be. This is just until the present. It's going to be this way, this this fractured sort of state. They call it European Union. But, you know, how unified is it? How, how you know, we, we saw that Britain uh, seceded. And, um, and And we'll see maybe more of that as it sort of fractures apart. But the key is, and as we wrap up this section, and again, this is just, you know, we're just laying some groundwork. I suggest you go over Daniel chapter two, check out the notes. There's more information in the notes. Um, check it out with history. Get out your your history books. This is the history of the world in that part of the world from the time of Babylon until today. This is what it is. But then when we get to, to Daniel uh, seven, well, here's Daniel two, the mighty image. This is Nebuchadnezzar's perhaps view of the kingdom of men, even though it's got a, a weak foundation. It's very austere and it's very manly. Well, what in Daniel 7, God gives dreams to Daniel. And he sees four different beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then this unnamed beast. And we have like a one-to-one correlation. The head of gold lines up with the the, the lion, which was a bit of an Assyrio-Babylon connection. Um, and then the breast and arms of silver relate to the bear, which was raised up on one side. It was a bit more powerful on the one side. That's the Medes and the Persians. This one's amazing. The, um, the, the, the animal, you know, God sees man's kingdoms as animals devouring and, 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 uh, you know, not this stately image, but, but just beasts. Uh, this one, it's a leopard. It's got four heads and four wings. And, uh, when it says very clearly in, in Daniel 7 and 8 that when um, the main person died, that being Alexander the Great, it was broken into four. And his four generals, we know from history, took over his empire. And so the fact that the leopard had four heads is, is perfect. Um, and then the last beast represents Rome. And in that, there's some horns and a little horn. It gets very complicated. The, the, the uh, imagery gets denser and denser. But if we get this basic overview from Daniel 2, we can now understand Daniel 7. And of course, then the stone represents um, God's kingdom on earth. And that's described in Daniel 7 in terms of uh, God sitting uh, in the person of his son on, on the throne. Um, and so Daniel 2 helped us to unlock Daniel 7. But this is where it gets really interesting. And that's why I had to look at Daniel chapter 13. Here's, here's an image perhaps of what we might have seen in Daniel thir- in uh, Revelation 13, it's kind of got a leopard body and heads, but it's got lion mouths and bare feet. You know, these are echoes. We, we've, we've said one of the best things you can do to read the Bible effectively is, is listen for echoes. Well, there's echoes all over the place here. Um, but there's a one-to-one correlation then here between Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. So Daniel 2 helped us understand Daniel 7. Daniel 7 helps us understand this beastly beastly representation of the kingdom of man then this is what revelation 13 is all about there's actually seven heads on the beast in revelation uh 13 well there were seven heads in the four different animals from chapter 7 of daniel there's 10 horns there's there's a leopard body but bare feet and a lion's mouth 
you know, could it be any clearer what Revelation 13 is talking about? It's talking about these same kingdoms somehow in their latter-day manifestation. You know, what in our world today is still Babylonian? What's still Medo-Persian? What Greek influence? You know, there's all kinds of Greek influence in our in our way of thinking and, and Roman influence. How is that still today in, in the government systems, in, in the kingdom of men as we see it today? Um, I think we get a lot of insight. And so this composite beast of, of, uh, of Revelation 13 is related to the beast of Daniel 7 and the nations in, in Daniel 2. It's talking about this is what the kingdom of God, kingdom of man is like on earth now, just prior to the return of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God being set up to replace it. So when we understand prophecy, we'll just go through this quickly. You can review these notes you know, we need to understand it. Like, what what did Nebuchadnezzar take from? What what did what did Daniel mean? There's there's some literal historical and contextual uh, relevance to the prophecy that was given. Um, is it is it just simply a warning? Lots of the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, their their words were prophetic, but only in a sense of of, of warning and 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 exhortation and and rebuke. Um, not always just predicting the future. Uh, sometimes a prophecy may have, have multiple fulfillments. Sure, it related to the fall of Babylon in 500 BC, but it also is going to relate to the fall of greater Babylon. You, you get to Revelation chapter 17, and it talks all about Babylon the Great. Where did that come from? we got to understand the, the, the Babylon from the prophecy of Daniel. We use the Bible to interpret images. What, what does a beast represent in Revelation 13? Well, Daniel 7 tells us those beasts represent nations. That, that are that make up the kingdom of man and of course most prophecies will climax at the return of the lord jesus christ so there may be some fulfillments along the way but the big one the big climax is jesus coming back to the earth and anything we understand in jesus helps us to understand previous earlier revelations and so prophecy is like a light the second peter passage here um prophecy is is like a light in a dark place and uh that can be a very a big comfort to us so we have a more sure world, word of prophecy remember men weren't it wasn't in private interpretation they were moved or carried along by the spirit of god when they made these prophecies so we have confidence in that um and it's like a light that shines in a dark place and that dark place is is often our own lives um and we need to take heed of it uh, in, in our hearts, as it says there. So this third third section we're going to look at is just some tips on reading. And just we, we looked at this um, uh, passage last week. This is a foundational one, 2 Timothy 3. Uh, From a child you have known the scriptures, Paul says to Timothy, they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And all scripture is breathed by God. Remember, we looked at that inspiration of God. God breathed. Theonoustos. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So what is our doctrine based on? What do we teach? We teach from the Bible. That's that's our source. You know, it, as, as we I think we mentioned last week, you know, if it's if it's not in the word, it's not of the Lord. It's not of private interpretation. It's 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 what's the Bible teach for reproof. Sometimes we need reproof and, and correction. We need instruction that we might be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is our source. And, and this alone is uh, is what gives us this kind of guidance. So how do we read it? Well, principle number one is read it. Uh, this graphic here of a, of a Bible that's collecting dust. 
won't do us any good sitting on our shelf or on our coffee table or on a bedside table. A steady, consistent diet of God's word is what's needed. And so we recommend as a minimum 30 minutes a day. It's kind of like exercise. You got to just work it into your schedule. Uh, it's kind of like eating. We do it sort of in the morning, in the middle of the day and in the evening. Maybe that's a good way to break up your, your diet of God's word. Um, we, this, I think we quoted this also previously, Acts 17, verse 11, these, these Bereans, people that were from the, the town of Berea, it says they were more fair-minded or more noble than the Thessalonians, uh, because they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And these things they were talking about here was, was what Paul was teaching. The apostle Paul would say, Hey, Bereans, you need to believe this, this, and this. And they're like, that's really interesting, Paul. But we're going to see what the Bible says. We're going to check out our Old Testament scriptures. That's all they had at that time. Um, and they did that daily to see whether it's so. How much more us these thousands of years later? So principle number one to effectively read the Bible is actually to break it open and read it. Um, so that requires a plan. And um, we have this here. Uh, this is a, a Bible reading planner that helps us get through the Bible an entire year. Uh, in the notes, there's there's one there, and if there's not, um, I'll put up a link to one that you can get your hands on this. It basically takes you through, if you if you follow that three-step plan, uh, there's two Old Testament readings and one New Testament reading, and it takes you through the entire Bible in a year. In fact, you cover the New Testament twice um, in three different portions, kind of like three meals a day. Although personally, I tend to read them all, usually after dinner, or sometimes first thing in the morning on my phone, because... You can get this. If you go to this Key to the Bible website, you can download this planner and get it on your phone. So um, I have it on, on my phone here. Um, it tells me what the three readings are, and I can just scroll through them. It's not as good as having a, a, a Bible in front of you because you don't see more than about five verses on your phone. Um, but it's certainly better than nothing. Um, and just to get that word in your head regularly. Now, that's going to take some preparation. So you, you need to allow time. You need to select a translation. We'll talk more about uh, translations in week four. Um, be comfortable, but if you're not like me, not too comfortable, or you might fall asleep while you're reading. Um, and as the picture kind of says here, it's kind of good to, to get with others. That's an encouragement, just like, you know, people have exercise buddies. That's, that's sometimes good. You know, your spiritual exercise you need to do with other people as well, because we can learn uh, from each other. But there's certainly an attitude of, of willingness to meditate on God's word, to think it through, um, to make that commitment to, to just do it. Sometimes that's what it takes. And, and maybe, you know, say, OK, starting today, I'm going to read the whole Bible every day for a year. And, and I'll tell you, by this time next year, your life will be transformed if you allow God's word to, to penetrate into your mind. Uh, we suggest reading aloud. Obviously, if you're in a group, that's easy. Um, being alone, I don't know, obviously we just read in our minds, but it's not as effective. Um, when you when you have to articulate words and say them out loud, you, you tend to think about them a bit more and you think to, you tend to remember them. Or as we've said last week, uh, remember to listen for echoes. And you might want to ask yourself some questions and, and they're here on the screen. I'm not going to go through them, but things like, you know, if you've read a chapter, so what was the main subject? What was the point of what I just read? Who are the people involved? You know, what do I learn about, about God in this chapter? What, what can I take away for myself? These are the kind of questions you should ask. You know, it has to be some intentional reading, not just casual reading. There needs to be some intent in it. Um, and so there's some questions there that, you know, you can ask. And maybe you have a little notebook. And so you can jot down some notes and questions to yourself to revisit later.
Um, so some basic things to think about here, kind of like with prophecy specifically, it's true of the Bible more generally. What is the context from what I've what, what I've written? You know, the, the text immediate uh, setting, the verses that are around it, and, and how it fits in the entire book. So like, what's the main thing about Genesis? Um, we're reading Leviticus. What, what's Leviticus? Like, that's all about laws and, and guidelines for priesthood. Okay, that then I got to interpret this passage I'm reading in that bigger context as well. So look at the social and historical and cultural environment. And you might have to look at some Bible dictionaries or some commentaries to, to get that. Um, but if you understand what was meant by the, it was the intention to the original readers, um, then we can then extract from that how it can relate to us. And that's the amazing thing about the Bible. It's as relevant today as it was when it was written, you know, 2,400 years ago. Um, be aware of translations that there can some bias can come through and literal translations are better. And as I mentioned, we're going to talk about translations in quite a bit of detail in week four. Um, be, be wary about interpreting a single passage all on its own. And what, what else did Paul say about that concept when he was writing to Timothy or Titus? How does, how does that fit or to the Colossians? Or when Jesus said that in Luke, um, how can we understand, you know, when he said the same thing in Matthew, how does, how does that work? So just seeing those connections between the, the verses, because it's, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And sometimes an individual piece might look like it could fit just about anywhere, but we know it's only got one place to fit. And as the rest of the puzzle comes together, then you can place that piece. So sometimes you just got to set it off to the side for a bit. Sure. You can get the edge pieces. They're pretty easy, but another one might just be, have to be set aside for a while until we got the the bigger picture as it were so interpret the bible as a whole so you know don't don't take um you know one individual passage and, and and blow it out of proportion in terms of what it might be teaching and of course when you don't understand that's going to require patience yeah you need to take that piece and just sit it off to the side i'm not sure what is being said in daniel chapter nine just i can't i, I got daniel two and seven what is nine all about or you know whatever sometimes we just need to wait and be patient uh, other translations can help to, to maybe unlock what a passage is, is saying, and we'll talk about that. Uh, and there are study tools that can uh, help this process. Now, we we required that a little bit. Um, we'll, we'll see in our next section we come to that we'll do a little bit on concordance work. But next week, week three, um, we will get into concordances and cross-references and and how you can you know get the Bible to, to be interpreting itself. We'll, we'll work on that. And of course, ask others. Um, just remember at the end of the day, you got to compare it to scripture, just like those Bereans. That's fine, Paul, but we're going to see what the scripture says. And primarily, as we mentioned last week as well, prayer. If you get stuck, God has promised to help you. He wants you to understand his word. So pray before you read. Pray after you read. Pray when you get stuck. Lord, what 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 is this passage about dragons and, and women and, and a man child in Revelation chapter 12? You know, now you can't jump in there without having to do a little bit of work yourself. Well, where else are dragons mentioned? Where else is a woman mentioned? What about the, you know, the seed of, of a woman? When's all that mentioned? Um, so you you build a bit of a, a repertoire, but at the end of the day, we we ask God to, to give us guidance in his word. Now, this is a section that we'll go through fairly quickly where our time is 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 just about gone. Um, in your workbook, there's two sections that, well, one we just briefly go over and one we've ignored altogether. 
Um, the one we don't cover on our in our seminar here is the section entitled Overview of the Books of the Bible. Uh, once you've got all the notes together, I know I'm posting them week by week, but eventually you'll have them all. Uh, there are sections where there's a commentary uh, of, of each book of the Bible, sometimes just a page, sometimes uh, maybe a bit longer than a page, that gives you like who the author was, what's the time period, what's the gist of the book, some suggested breakdown, like the first chapter is about this, the second chapter is about that, that gives you just a, that brief overview. So we're not covering those. You can read that for yourself. And there may, may be other um, helpful ways to find it. Some, some Bibles have a little uh, intro at the beginning of each, of, each, uh, of each book that gives you the same kind of thing. Just remember, those are, are, are men's ideas. They don't, they're not inspired. Um, so, so read them with that in mind. And the other section is that's in each week, uh, starting today, week two, um, is the terminology section. And there's a bunch of terms in there that are just helpful if you're going to read the Bible effectively. Sometimes you just need to know, what, what does that word mean? So we'll do a couple of them together, and we'll go through rather, relatively quickly. Now, back in the, down in the corner here, I've got a, a picture of, of Strong's Concordance of the Bible. And if you want to know what a word means, that's where you, you need to go. It's got a list of every single word that appears in the Bible, what the equivalent, what the original um, Hebrew word was or Greek word and what those words mean. So it, it's very useful. It's, you know, when we're reading in our Bible, when we're reading in, in, in English, um, it's a translation. Um, and sometimes things get lost in translation. We have to understand that. So the concordance will be very helpful. And as I mentioned, next week, we have an entire section dedicated on how to use a concordance, both a physical concordance and an electronic one. So just I've picked a couple here because they they jumped out at me. It's kind of interesting. Um, so from this terminology section in your in the in the notes in the workbook, um, atonement literally means to cover or to purge or to make reconciliation. This passage from Leviticus is talking about Yom Kippur, the day of, of atonement. Um, you make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins. They did it once a year. Um, and interesting about this is. Uh, when William Tyndale was translating in the 1500s from Greek and Hebrew into English, uh, a lot of his ideas and, and interpretations and translations come through even to us today. And this was a word that he made up. If you, if you sort of parse it out, it's at one meant. So sin separates us from God. Reconciliation or atonement brings us back together. We are at one again. And, and that's a, an easy way to understand what this word means. So to make an atonement for the children of Israel means to bring them back to be at one with God. Uh, these ones are interesting. I've got Jesus and Christ here. We we obviously talk a lot about Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus is his, is his name. That's the name that was given him at birth. As it says here in Matthew 1, you're going to call his name Jesus. That's Greek. Um, it would be pronounced a little bit differently if you were a Greek, speak, Greek speaker, but it's come through transliterated literally uh, into English as Jesus. Um, the Hebrew equivalent name is Joshua, and it means Yah saves. Yahweh is God's name, so it's a contraction of that, Yah saves, or the salvation of Yahweh. And uh, so Joshua would have been Jesus's Hebrew name, and Jesus was his Greek name. Now, Christ uh, is not his second name. Jesus Christ is really saying Jesus, the anointed one, now, Christ, again, is Greek. It's it's Christos. So if I was a Greek speaker and you were saying Jesus Christ, it would be Jesus Christos, something like that. Don't claim to be a Greek speaker. 
Um, the Hebrew word uh, for anointed is is like Messiah. It's like Messiah with a bit of a in your throat, uh, transliterated again into English as Messiah. So Jesus Christ is just Jesus, the anointed one, or Jesus, the Messiah. That's what we're saying. So his name is Jesus, and then his, his title, if you like, um, is, is what he is. He's the anointed one, anointed as priest, anointed as king. Um, he is the Messiah. Uh, what else we got here? Gospel. Uh, it just literally means good news or glad tidings. It's an English word. It used to be God's spell, like spelling like words and God's, so God's words that we've just contracted to gospel. That means the good news or the glad tidings. Um, baptism, that's an interesting word. Again, Greek. You don't have to be a Greek speaker. I've only learned this because of my study of the Bible. You look it up and it's it's a Greek word, baptizo. Um, and it means to dip in, in to dye, to, to, to submerse in water, to, to, be, to full immersion. Taken from the dye tree, you know, you take a white cloth, you'd put it in the purple dye and it would come out purple. Um, and so that gives, that informs us in terms of what baptism for us in a spiritual way kind of means. We go in, the old man goes in, under the water dies and up comes a new man. It's a, it's a, it's a change, complete change uh, spiritually. Um, soul is an interesting one. A soul is an English word that carries with it a lot of baggage. And this week's homework is based on this word soul. So I won't go into it. It's uh, the Hebrew word is nefesh. The Greek word is suke, suke, that don't really relate to our English word fully. And so this is a bit of a challenging one. So in Genesis 2 verse 7, where it says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, um, that word soul has some, some baggage with it um, in English. And so we want to unpack that, what it was meant by the original word. And it's this word nefesh. So if you're interested in following that up, uh, it's in the homework that I'll post, uh, the worksheet really. Um, and you'll see what that means. And, and it's actually just, it's a description for both humans and animals that God gave the animals life, and they also became living beings uh, or living creatures. In a lot of modern translations, it wouldn't have the word soul here. It would have man became a living being. And the creatures, the, whether it's the fish or the land animals, they became living creatures, a breathing creature. So dust animated by God's breath or spirit makes us alive. Uh, and that's what a living soul is. So uh, that's the end of, of, of our, our week two. Uh, hopefully that wasn't gone too quickly. Again, a reminder, the notes are there, the slides will be there. And if you want to take a look at that homework, um, it might be a little bit difficult for you if you don't know how to use a concordance. We kind of went through it in person, uh, stepping through it as a group. Um, but next week, we'll look at how to use a concordance, and then you can always revisit it. Um, a lot of things here are on phone, your phone as well. You can get a phone that has this strong concordance built into the Bible text, and that can make it a bit easier. So uh, until next week, uh, I thank you once again for watching. Uh, I pray for God's blessing upon you as you learn to read his Bible effectively. Um, and I pray that uh, God will watch you. Remember to ask him for help. Find other people that want to read with you, and I pray that you will be able to read God's word more effectively by some of the tips and insights that you've gotten from this, this, uh, this class. So until next time, 
Uh, take care and God bless.